0: Joshua 24, Lord willing, we'll start the book of Judges in September, uh, but tonight we'll finish Joshua uh, in Joshua 24. So we'll read the entire entire chapter, I'll begin reading at verse 1. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, to Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also, I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt, according to what I did among them. Afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them, and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand, that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel, and sent and called Balaam the son of Beor to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the men of Jericho fought against you, also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites, who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore he said, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness to us for it was it has heard all the, excuse me the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you Lest deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart each to his own inheritance. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being one hundred and ten years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Serah, which is on the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of the of Mount Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem. in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for one hundred pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. Now Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died. They buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas, a son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. Amen. Well, there are certain hymns that I'm singing during a Sunday service, and I have to confess, sometimes a tear comes into my eyes. Singing it about Jesus, keep me near the cross, or abide with me, or uh, the sands of time. Or singing songs that are about the cross of Christ, songs are about the goodness of God, songs are about the faithfulness of the Lord God Most High. And there's other hymns that perhaps, if you're like me, you begin to sing them, and you go, "I'm a massive hypocrite." When I sing songs like I trust and obey or sweet hour of prayer, I confess I don't trust and obey all that often or as much as I should. I must confess it's not really a sweet hour of prayer, but a sweaty slog uh, before my God most high. And certainly this is something Davis observes. There's probably some hymns that are a little more uh, uh, neo-nomian, a little more a little workspace than we would like to admit. And Davis observes this and Pastor, but- Pastor Butler and I were talking about this. A month or so ago as well because we really do not trust and obey as much as we should. And we really cannot trust and obey but for the grace of God. He redeemed us. He cleansed us. He has poured out His Spirit that we might honor Him imperfectly. And the only way we can do it is by His grace because we are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God that we love, which makes His new covenant promises all the more remarkable... And all the more comforting. We must remember his faithfulness. And especially his faithfulness according to the promises of the new covenant. Now even then in Joshua we've seen his faithfulness to Abraham. His faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant. And his faithfulness according to the old covenant terms. God promised to give Abraham a seed. And God promised to give Abraham a land. He had no falling word, And so God gives them the land. But according to the Old Covenant terms, they must then retain the land. And that's the section that we are in. The final section of Joshua is retaining the land. We saw the importance of worship, Joshua 22. We saw the importance of obedience to the Word of God, Joshua 23. And we also tonight see the importance of faithfulness to a gracious God in Joshua 24. Because the problem really is covenant failure. And covenant failure for Israel. If they do not do what Yahweh says, then the curses that Yahweh promised in Deuteronomy 28 will come upon them. They must not be allured. They must not be enticed by foreign gods, whether it's the foreign gods of their ancestors or the foreign gods of the Canaanites in the land. And so Joshua's final word is one of encouragement, but also one of warning as well. Here's what Yahweh has done. Him you shall serve rather than these other gods. And the punishment will be exile away from the land. In exile, away from that promised land that God gave to Abraham. And so in Joshua 24, as we transition, as Joshua passes away, we see covenant renewal before he passes. Usually these covenant renewals come at great times of transition, or great times of crisis. Certainly when Uh, Moses passes, there is this renewal. Certainly when God enters into covenant with them in Exodus 24, we have covenant ratification. Then we have the golden calf scenario and there's covenant renewal again in Exodus 34. But as Joshua passes and uh, as uh, Eliezer passes, we see that God enters or uh, we see that there's covenant renewal for the people in Joshua 24. So we'll look at this covenant renewal under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see what the Lord has done, verses 1 through 13. Then secondly, we'll see what Israel must do, verses 14 through 33. So very covenantal. What the Lord has done, historical prologue. And then what Israel must do, covenant stipulation. So what the Lord has done and what Israel must do. So let's first look at what the Lord has done in verses 1 through 13. And notice in verses 1 through 5, we see covenant promise. Now remember the context. There's warning about Yahweh's no-falling words. We've seen his encouragement with no-falling words, but we've also seen his warning with respect to no-falling words. His covenant curses can come upon them just as much as his covenant blessings. And so, as Joshua is about to pass, he gathers the people, all the tribes of Israel, to Shechem. And he called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers And they presented themselves before God. This language of presenting themselves before God comes up often when it comes to this idea of covenant renewal or covenant ratification. And so they come and they gather at the place of Shechem. And the reason they gather at the place of Shechem is because, one... It's the place where they've already done some covenant ratification or a covenant ceremony with that Shechemite dodecalogue that was mentioned in Deuteronomy 27. But we saw the ratification in Deuteronomy chapter 8. But also Shechem is important when it comes to the promises of God to Abraham. Where does God appear to Abraham when he first enters into the land? Shechem. That is where the Lord God appears. As Henry says, the place appointed for their meeting is Shechem, not only because that lay nearer to Joshua than Shiloh, and therefore more convenient now that he was infirm and unfit for traveling, but because it was the place where Abraham, the first trustee of God's covenant with his people, settled at his covenant to Canaan, and where God appeared to him, and near which stood Mounts Gerizim and Ebal, Where the people had renewed their covenant with God at their first coming into Canaan. Of the promises God had made to their fathers, of the promises they themselves had made to God, this place might serve to put them in mind. So it's not just their words that shall be a witness against them. It's not just the covenant itself that will be a witness against them. It's not just this giant rock that's going to be a witness against them, but the place itself. It's where Yahweh had appeared to Abraham. It's where they had engaged in covenant renewal. And notice how he starts off by reminding them of the problem of Abraham and the promise that God made to Abraham. Abraham was a pagan. Abraham wasn't sitting around waiting for God Most High. He wasn't knocking on the door of heaven. He was the one who served other gods. He was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And Yahweh saved him. Yahweh called him. And Yahweh entered into covenant with him. And this is what um, uh, Joshua does. He reminds the people of God's goodness. And throughout the reminders, it's usually in times of crisis. Usually in times of great obstacles for the people of God. And it shows Yahweh's faithfulness to him. His might and his power to these people. So he says... Thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times and they served other gods. Abram was a pagan. Abraham worshipped other gods and yet Yahweh was pleased to save him. Not anything good within Abram, but it was God himself who did such a great salvation. And so God changes him. God saves him. God calls him him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. We see this in Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. And then we see what God's promise is to Abraham. Verse 3. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. We saw God promise two things to Abraham. I promised to give you seed I promise to give you descendants, and I promise to give you a land, but there are great obstacles. Abraham was old, Sarai was barren, and yet we see god's promises and God's workings are far greater than ours. Most of the time, God shows that He does not need you and I, but He shows that he may, uh, makes do or he uh, brings it but not makes do, but makes a great way by his might. And his power. And so God promised and God gave. God gave him Isaac. And notice we see the slow promises of God. Remember, it took 25 years before Isaac was actually born to Sarah. God made the promise, but God didn't reveal everything about that promise. Yet Abraham still had to trust uh, in God and trust in his ways throughout those years. Tried to take things to his own. Uh, hands A few times that didn't work so well. God is still gracious and merciful to him. And give gave him descendants. But it's just Isaac to start. I and mean, then even then. Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And even then that took 20 years. It was a long time for Rebecca to wait as well. Rebecca waited for quite some time. And it was just two. I know two is better than one. When we think about the promises of God. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the sand of the sea. Well there's Isaac. And then Jacob and Esau. And so Jacob and Esau come into this world. God provided, but Esau rejects the birthright. Jacob receives the blessing. But what's odd is that Esau receives a possession. Verse 4, to Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Again, the obstacles seem to abound when it comes to the people of God becoming the people of God. And yet Yahweh was faithful uh, faithful throughout all of these obstacles. And even then, Esau receives a temporal blessing. You see this in more detail in Genesis 36. And perhaps the, uh, the purpose of that was how much more. If God gave these temporal blessings to Esau, how much more will he give blessings to his chosen race? How much more will he give blessings to the promised one, namely Jacob? Now, it's going to take some time. They're going to go into Israel or into Egypt first. Uh, uh, Esau shall receive his possession, but it will be some time before Jacob receives his. And so they have to go. There's famine in the land, but we see even then God's uh, providence uh, protects them uh, by way of Joseph going before them. As uh, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. So the people go into Egypt. But then we see God's covenant protection. He gives this promise and he provides. He gives this promise and he protects that promise because he is a faithful God. And so verse 5, I sent Moses and Aaron. After 400 years, God remembers his covenant promises. They cry out to him. The people cry out as they go are are under great oppression in Egypt, according to what I did among them. God plagued Egypt, God showed his might and his power, God showed his might and his power over the gods of Egypt, that he is the one they can trust. So he brings them out, but then another obstacle comes, and that is, he hardens Pharaoh's heart once again. When I brought, uh, verse 6, your father's out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And so your, your fathers cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them, and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. God protected them. God provided for them. But obstacle after obstacle after obstacle to the covenant promises that God had said. God said a certain thing. But for us, God seems to delay. For us, we see an obstacle. But Yahweh time and again showed that he is a faithful God to his promises. He provided covenant protection out of Egypt. Provided covenant protection at the Red Sea. Provided protection in the wilderness. But also provided protection as they have to deal with the baddies in the land. As they have to deal with the baddies on the eastern side, and then once they enter into the land of Canaan, as they have to deal with these enemies. Verse 8, the those in the land opposite Israel. I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand, that you might possess their land. We see that with Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. They possessed that land as a precursor and foretaste of but the fullness of what that land shall be for the rest of the people. But even then they had their problems. They destroyed them from before them. But then here comes Balak, the king of Moab. He arose to make war against Israel. And he sent and called Balaam, the son of Baor, to curse you. Israel didn't see that coming. Israel didn't know that Balak was doing these things. And yet, once again, it shows that God is protecting his people from traps and snares that they don't even see from traps and snares that they don't even notice. That is what God does for us, dear brethren. There's probably a million things that we do not see. It's like probably walking in a minefield, but we have no idea where the mines are. Yet Yahweh protects us and guides us through each and every step. And so God turned the cursing of Balaam. Now, Balaam was supposed to be a seer, one who saw into certain things, but he couldn't see, could he? It was his donkey, that saw. It was his donkey who knew what was going on. It was his donkey uh, that saw that uh, he was in big trouble. God turned the blood cursing into blessing. I would not listen to Balaam, verse 10 Therefore, he continued to bless you, so I delivered you out of his hand. From the enemies we see and from the enemies we don't see, God delivers his people. And so he delivered them out of Egypt, he walked with them in, in the wilderness, and he also delivered them in the battles they engaged in on the eastern side. But he also was with that was with them in the battles they had when they entered into the land of Canaan. This is what we saw in the book, verse, verse eleven through thirteen. Then he went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the men of Jericho they fought against you and the Amorites. And the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Gergeshites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, but I delivered them into your hand. You routed Canaan because I was the one who was with you. And verse 12 I sent the hornet before you. This is what God promised in Deuteronomy 7. He said, I would fight for you. I will send that hornet. I will drive them away. Uh, We all run from hornets. I'm allergic to hornets, so I really run from hornets. And so he drove that hornet before the people to drive out the people, uh, drive out the the Canaanites before the people. I drove them out. I drove out those two kings, Og and Sion, uh, but not with the sword or with your bow, highlighting that it was Yahweh who did these things. Yahweh fought for They would not have won if Yahweh was not with them. It doesn't mean they didn't actually, they certainly used swords and used bows, but the point is Yahweh fought for them. And the point is of verse 13, just as Yahweh fought for them, he gave them the land. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. It was all that Yahweh uh, did for his people. All the provision Yahweh gave to his people. And that's something we can apply for the New Covenant era, for the New Covenant people. How Yahweh provides for his people. When you think about the salvation that we have, it is based upon better promises because it is a better covenant. We have a land that lasts forever. And the reason we live is because someone worked for us. We are not Old Covenant Israel. Old Covenant Israel had to work to earn, to retain the land, had to work to have blessings in the land. And even then, it was only external blessings. And thankfully for us, according to the New Covenant era, we have New Covenant internal blessings. As we see the salvation of pagans, so God has saved wretches like you and I. We were not searching for God. We were not longing for God, and yet God saved us. God is faithful to us. God is gracious to us. God is merciful to us. And we see his good promises toward wretches like us. And Thankfully, we see his promises still unfolding for us day by day and little by little. That's how Yahweh works. We want him to answer all our prayers right now. But Yahweh works little by little and He protects us little by little. Davis says this is frequently God's way to be faithful in little and even little by little. It might help our faith if we would fasten our eyes more on fact than degree of God's faithfulness or its speed. We easily lose sight of what Yahweh has done by demanding too much too soon. He is faithful according to His promises, His promises shall be sure. And he is the one who protects his people, doesn't he? Isn't that the promises of Hebrews 13? I will promise to never leave you nor forsake you based on Joshua chapter 1. That is God's promise for his people. That is God's promise for his church. He will always protect and he will always provide. And one thing that's so blessed, even though our Lord died, he rose again and he is with us. Joshua died and was no more with the people. And Henry picks up on this when he says, While Joshua lived, religion was kept among them under his care and influence. But soon after he and his contemporaries died, it went to decay. So much oftentimes does one head hold up. How well is it for the gospel church that Christ, our Joshua, is still with it, by his Spirit, and will be with us always, even and until the end of the world. God fights, God protects, and God is with us according to his new covenant promises. That's what Yahweh does for us. That's what Yahweh did for Israel. But then notice in verses 14 through 33 what Israel must do. Remember, this is the old covenant. I mean, that's important for the context, especially when we get to verse 15, which is taken out of context by our minions. And if you actually read the text, an Armenian would have an aneurysm or have a towel or however, however you want to word it with what is said. And hopefully you will see that as we go through. But old covenant setting, the people had to do what Yahweh said. Otherwise, bad stuff will happen to them. So we see covenant requirement in verses 14 through 21. So he says, after here's what Yahweh has done, now therefore... We're not against Yahweh's grace in the Old Testament, but the histo- Yahweh's grace is part of the historical prologue. Here's what Yahweh has done for the people. Now therefore, do this and live. Verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Don't serve these gods. Worship Yahweh of Israel. The covenant command, the key command, is making sure that they have no other gods before them. That they do not engage in idolatry. He's already seen the covenant warnings. He's already seen the cracks come in. He's already seen what's happened in times past. And he wants to make sure that they're protected in the future. So he gives them this kind and good warning. Serve the Lord. Worship Him. Don't serve the other gods. And verse 15, If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, did you catch what he said? Did you see the choices? Because I didn't catch it until Davis pointed it out. I must have been tired or, you know, glossing over it. Choose for yourselves which two gods the gods of Mesopotamia, the gods of those on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites. Why does he word it that way? Why does he put it in such terms? It's to highlight the absurdity. The absurdity of worshipping any god. Whether it's a god who is conservative, the god of the gods of tradition, the gods of old, the gods of Mesopotamia, or the gods that are more relevant, the gods that are more alluring. The gods of Canaan. It doesn't matter which God it is. It doesn't matter what it looks like. The one God you're supposed to serve is Yahweh and trust in his ways. He says, If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Everyone highlights that point and then goes to verse 15, uh, the latter part of verse 15, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, but they don't see the, pur- uh, the purpose and the context. He's highlighting the absurdity of serving anyone other than Yahweh of Israel. Someone might say, perhaps as Joshua is saying those things, why did you put it just with those two? That seems absurd because it is absurd. It's foolishness. It's ludicrous to serve any God other than Yahweh. And guess what the people do? Uh, they serve gods other than Yahweh. But we don't have to get there yet. But for now, uh, we see that that's his charge to them. To be aware, to be on guard. It is absurd to serve any god other than Yahweh. That's why when someone gets saved, uh, some people refer it as one who becomes uh, comes to their right mind. Because sin is insanity, sin is absurdity, sin is foolish. And so Joshua still says, though, for me, my house, we will serve the Lord. We're not going to serve that God. We're not going to serve these gods. We're going to serve this God. It doesn't matter what you do, but my house and my family, we shall serve this God whom we love. We will serve him. And so he gives this command and he gives this choice And the people, verse 16, there's this back and forth throughout covenant, you know, dialogue. And so the people say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. We're engaging in covenant renewal here. Now, again, this happens in Exodus 24 with covenant ratification. And the people say, we'll do what you say, Moses. What happens in Exodus 32? They're bowing before a calf. They're bowing on their wedding, they're engaging in adultery on their wedding night to God, uh, against God Most High, and worshipping this golden calf. See how quickly they fell? Yeah, we got this, we can do it, no problem. Golden calf, where is Moses? We don't know, let's throw all this in here and see what happens. And then that's when we see God, you know, uh, Moses intercedes, Moses acts as mediator, there's still some sort of judgment that happens with 3,000 dying but then they engage in covenant renewal in Exodus 34 God gracious God kind God is patient there and so the people here say we're going to serve the Yahweh now we'll see in verse 31 that the immediate generation does serve the Lord for the most part does serve him according to verse 31 but what of subsequent generations and for now at this covenant ceremony we see their reasons the Lord he brought us up He is the one who delivered us from bondage. He did these great signs. He preserved us in all the way that we went against all the people through whom we passed. And he himself is the one who drove out all these people. We will serve this Lord, for he is our God. So good. Affirmation. Confirmation. We got it. But there's also a caution. That's the purpose of verses 19 through 20. Joshua is saying, don't be flippant with your words. Don't be flippant with what you say. Perhaps it's akin to the Lord Jesus saying in Luke 14, 28, count the cost. Consider what this looks like. Consider what it shall be like to follow the Lord God most high. If you fail, here's what's going to happen. You cannot serve the Lord. He's cautioning them here. And the purpose of this caution is to drive them to Yahweh. They cannot do it on their own. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. Again, remember the stipulations of the old covenant. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And all the people say, no, but we will serve the Lord. So he gives this caution. They engage in this reaffirmation. But again, it's still very quick. This is where David comment, or Davis comments on hymns. And he says, Too frequently, the Jesus we present is some variety of prepackaged joy, peace, and provision that works twice as fast as aspirin. He is our cellophane Christ. We should, should not sell Christ like that, but warn people about him. We want people to believe. We want people to come to saving knowledge in Christ, but count the cost. Our task is not to bait people into saying, I will lay down my life for you, but to get them and ourselves to squirm a little bit under his searching, do you love me? We want people to believe. We know that they're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but Jesus still asks probing questions. Count the cost. Consider, do you love me? Too many of us perjure ourselves before a holy judge as we sing, I surrender all, or my Jesus, I love thee. There are stanzas and some some hymns that I dare not sing. And he goes on to uh, talk about his pastoral oath that he gave before he became a pastor. I, I said one as well. And he's like, I couldn't do any of those things except the importance of the word by the grace of God. Isn't that the most important thing? Even when it comes to wedding vows, I think I've joked at two of the four weddings or three weddings I've done that the bride and groom are now part of the failed marriages club. And the reason is you don't keep your vows except for by the grace of God. I don't keep my vows except for by the grace of God. We need to know that. We need to be reminded of that. We need to recognize that everything good within me is from God. As Augustine says, And everything else is my fault. We don't pray as much as we should. We don't love the Lord God as much as we ought. We don't lay our our lives down. You know how I know that? Because we don't live for Jesus now. We have peace at this time. And we can pray. We can sing. We can come. We can worship. And yet, so often our minds wander. Yet, so often we don't want to sing. Yet so often we don't want to pray. Yet so often we do terrible things. Thanks be to God for his grace. By the grace of God, everything comes from him by his grace. And so verses 19 through 21 is a caution for them, similar to count the cost that Jesus says in Luke chapter 14. But the people continue and they say, we will serve him. And so then Joshua brings covenant witnesses against them in verses 22 through 28. So the dialogue, Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves, that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they say, we are witnesses. So they speak, we are witnesses. And then the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and obey his voice. Oh, sorry, verse 23 Therefore, if that's the case, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. The implication seems to be they still had some gods lurking. They still had some idols, perhaps. We saw that Rachel, when Rachel and then Leah and Jacob and they leave Laban, she still took some of the household gods. And there seems to be some implication or that that could be the case here as well. So put them away. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve, and his voice we will obey. And so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. So he engaged in covenant renewal there for, uh, with them. They are witnesses, but also the law is going to be a witness against them, and a giant rock. Verse 26. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the yoke that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us before it has heard, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So their words are witnesses against them. It's written in the book of the law as well. Joshua perhaps um, uh, included that. And then also as well, uh, this giant stone shall be a witness against them, if should they deny the Lord God. So covenant renewal happens. The people then, in verse 28, uh, return to their own inheritance. They came for an assembly, a solemn assembly. Now, Now they're all going back to their inheritances. And then we see the book end with God's covenant faithfulness, or we could say covenant death, in verses 29 through 33 we have three funerals of sorts. Really two funerals and some bones. But notice in verses 29 through 31, we do see covenant faithfulness. Faithfulness on the part of Yahweh, but faithfulness on the part of the people. And Joshua gets old, our dear friend is going to die. And it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, that's High praise for this one died being 110 years old and they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Sarah which is in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash or gaash or geish however you want to say that the point is it's all about the land God gave this promise and now this one is buried in the land he received his inheritance and his body is also buried in that land as well. And the people will retain the land and they should they do what Yahweh says. And so verse 31 and verse 33 which we'll get to in a sec is in a lot of ways a test for them. That this generation verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. They did what was right. What will the next generation do? What will happen during the times of the judges? Spoiler alert. Nothing good happens. I mean, there's some cool guys we read about with the judges. But there is some sad cycles that we see during the judges period. We see that why does Israel get kicked out of the land? Judges through Kings explains that. Why they spiral into uh, adultery, idolatry, and eventually into exile. But there's still some encouraging things uh, in verse 32. We see the bones of Joseph. Now, we're not supposed to be grave robbers, but uh, verse 32, the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem, and the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, father of Shechem, for for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. Jacob buys this plot in Genesis 33. And Joseph, after the people have come into Egypt, he knows Egypt is not their home. And he has zeal for the promises of God, even in his dying day. And his dying breath is, take my bones, put them and bury them in the promised land. He still had concern for God's Abrahamic promises, even though he knew it was going to be a long time before that promise was fulfilled. He had faith. By faith, he trusted in the promises of God, and so he come all the way from Egypt, all the way into the land. From how the people had to escape famine, how God protected them in Egypt, brought them up out of, the e- out of Egypt. And now we see God's promises fulfilled even to Joseph. And then in verse 33, we see the death of the priest. The Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. They buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. Will Israel lay hold of God's word for blessing or for curse? And the answer to that question is no. And again, Judges to Kings explains what happens. But we can close on a positive note because the whole book is all about God's promises. And the most comforting thing is that Yahweh's promises are sure because His new covenant promises are better promises because we have a better mediator. We have a Christ who has come, we have a Christ who has lived, we have a Christ who has died and rose again. And because He lived, we shall live with Him. Because he did, we have life. We cannot do anything. We don't do anything to earn salvation. But Christ does that very thing for us. And what's so interesting is Stephen, as he's recounting and standing on trial uh, before the Jews, eventually he drives to the point where he tells Israel, you've always been a stiff-necked people and they don't like that. And so uh, they stone him. But he's recounting all that Yahweh had done. He's recounting all of Yahweh and God's promises in the Old Testament, driving to the point where it finds fulfillment in Christ. You killed the promised one. You killed the just one. Even though it's indictment against the Jews, nonetheless, we see that Stephen is pointing out that Christ is the true Israel and Christ is the true tabernacle. Christ is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. He is the fulfillment of all the promises uh, uh, that were given in the Old Testament, especially that promise to Abraham. As Paul says, when he talks about seed, the seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. And has he not fulfilled those promises? Has he not brought salvation that we need? Has he not saved you and I? Is he not our advocate now? And will he not bring us home? You see, brethren, we believe on God's word. We trust uh, and believed upon Jesus, believing he did live, die, and rose again for salvation, for mercy, for hope, but also for protection. He walks with us now, and we uh, walk by faith. We trust in his promises. We trust and take him at his word And we also believe he will come again. Just as he came and we believe that. He has also spoken and said he will come again. And there is a great land and an inheritance that awaits us. And we'll close with Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is all about faith. All about the Old Testament saints and their faith. Looking ahead to Christ to come. And not just Christ to come. But also the land that he would purchase. And in fact we see in verse 13. These all died in faith. not having received the promises. That having seen them afar off. Were assured of them. Embraced them. Confessed them. That they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they sought a heavenly country. And eventually in verse 12. He drives to the point where we now have come to a heavenly country. But notice verse 22. By faith. Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. He had faith in the promises of God. He had faith in Christ to come. And eventually it drives to the point where in verse 39, in verses 39 and 40, which are good verses to highlight how salvation is of the old and the new. All these, or salvation is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. God's words are sure. The old covenant land, all the division of the land in the Old Testament points ahead to a far greater land that awaits the people of God, a greater inheritance, a greater Zion that the Old Covenant Saints longed for. They looked ahead, they longed for it, and it's something that we long for as well as we press on, as we head toward Zion, and how then shall we live, dear brethren, as we press on toward that heavenly country? Well, It's by faith, trusting in the promises of God and remembering that there are no falling words. That is the purpose of Joshua. That is its point. We have a faithful God who is faithful to his promises. Well, let's pray. Well, Lord our God, we are thankful for what you have said in your word and thank you that you're the one who is all powerful to bring it to pass. And thank you that you've done so in time and space. Thank you for the promises, uh, promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thank you for your promises to Israel. Thank you for your promises to David. And thank you for your promises according to the new covenant. We confess that we have believed by faith. And even then, faith is a gift. We have not seen you, O Lord, yet we believe in you. We believe in our Savior. We believe in Christ. And we believe that there is a great heavenly inheritance that awaits. We do have hope. Thank you that even now as we make our way to that celestial city, we do come to Zion each and every Lord's Day. We know it is a glimpse and foretaste of what heaven shall be like, but thank you that you give it to us. We confess we are tired and we are weary. We have many sorrows that we deal with. We are not disembodied spirits. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is so very weak. And yet we are thankful that you uplift us, you encourage us, you guide us, and you keep us. And you shall keep us till the end. We ask that we would be faithful to the end. But we know that we cannot do it without your strength. And so we ask that you would be with us. As you've said. That you'd be near to us as you've promised. That you would never leave us nor forsake us. Watch over us we ask and pray. Thank you for your protection. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your promises. Please forgive us for our dullness. Please forgive us for our failures. Please forgive us. Uh, for the times we do not trust and obey and times and many times our prayers are weak and feeble and stammering and scattered. And yet, oh God, thank you for that promise that our sins are forgiven, that promise that our sins have been cleansed in the blood of Christ. And so we ask because of your promises and what you've done, we ask that we would walk by faith. We ask that we would trust in your ways. We ask that we would honor you. Help us to do so. Help us not to sin, but if we do, Thank you for Christ, our advocate, and thank you for Christ, our mediator, who is a mediator of a better covenant with better promises. So we pray that you would help us as we go into the world. Help us to cling to your word, especially as we face obstacles, especially as we deal with sins, especially as we deal with the world and the devil. Help us to cling to your word, for you are God who is faithful. Thank you so much for this truth. Be with us now by your spirit, we pray.